0: Please take your seats. Normally I ought to have you stand as I read God's word, but this is a long passage from Genesis chapter 27. What a story. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, "Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright, but your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, "Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and told it to his brothers and said, "Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to, him, to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and We'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued them out of his, him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him, And cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the blood the robe into the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said this we found please identify whether it is your son's robe or not and he identified it and said it is my son's robe a fierce animal has devoured him Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces Told you it was a wild story. Let's pray. Father, your word uh, in its truthfulness uh, tells us a story of a very awful family who did very awful things to one of their brothers. Nevertheless, wonderful things happened because of this story. And we pray today as Ryan speaks that you would um, do wonderful things in our hearts because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Thank you for that, Joe. Good morning. It's good to be here with you today. If you're new here with us, we have been journeying through the book of Genesis for some time now, uh, and it's been quite the journey. And and what we're entering into now is kind of the last phase of what's ha- been happening in the book of Genesis, where we turn uh, to what God does through Joseph's life. Um, and and I would say this, you know, there's there's one thing we've been reminded of as we've read through the book of Genesis and we've we've preached through it. Uh, it's this: is that there are no illusions. Of, of people's inherent self-righteousness uh, uh, in the book of Genesis, there, there's no hiding people's sin and, and this is a prime example of that. But if there was one person that you would say you know it'd be okay for my daughter to date in, in the book of Genesis, it might be Joseph like he was he might be the only one I don't know. but uh, so we look at his story today and don't I don't want to idolize him or make him more righteous than he is because he's a sinner as well. but we're going to start this journey through the next 13 chapters of seeing how God, uh, brings all things together through this terrible situation uh, in Egypt with Joseph. I have a question for you, though. Um, you know, as we dig in together today, I want to well, give you a picture first, then i got a question for you. Um, and this, this may be a metaphor for your own life, but on, on May thirteenth, two 2009, uh, you might not know what you were doing, but I can remember very well what I was doing. I did one of the scariest things I've ever done before in my life, I went skydiving. I went skydiving with two buddies of mine, and uh, I even knew that Megan was pregnant with our firstborn child, and I still got in that rickety aircraft and went up in the sky. And uh, you know, before we got before we got up in the air, I was the most confident guy you'd ever meet. In fact, I talked two buddies into going with me, but as soon as I was asked to sign a waiver to void my life insurance, uh, <clears throat> and then uh, my my instructor. Was uh, I watched him pack the chute, and I was like, "Man, this does, it seems like there's got to be more to it than this." And then we get twelve thousand feet up in the air. I was like panicking, but that door flew open, and I, it was like, "Oh my goodness, what are we gonna do?" And uh, and I lost all sense of the training that they had given us over the the, the, the prior hours there. There's a video to prove that on YouTube somewhere. But I jumped out of the plane, and I experienced the most terrifying 45 seconds of my life as the ground seemed to fly at my face with breakneck speed. And uh, <clears throat> I, I literally couldn't remember how they told me to keep my feet, you know, what to do with the, I couldn't remember how to open the chute. I couldn't remember any of these things. And all of a sudden, I experienced what felt like an emergency brake being pulled from heaven, The chute opened. And it was amazing. I was like, yeah, this is great, because you're like, you know, a couple thousand feet in the air, you're getting to watch everything. But before that, you know, no confidence whatsoever. And why do I tell you this? I was doing a tandem skydive, not a solo skydive. Um, So all the fear, all the anxiety, all the adrenaline was being governed by someone who had much more experience than I did jumping out of airplanes. This guy had jumped out a plane You know, 10,000 times. And the story of Joseph to me when I read it, it reminds me somewhat of a free fall in the middle of the sky that doesn't seem to end. Genesis 37 reminds us of this free fall, this, this forcible fall into a pit from his brothers, this forcible fall into slavery, a fall into Egypt that will become a fall into prison, that will become a fall into the sheer grace and sovereign plan of God. Have you ever experienced a free fall in your life before? Use that image of someone skydiving, falling through the air, where it seems like there's no end in sight. Have you ever experienced a season in your life that just feels like a sheer free fall through the clouds? You know, some of us, and I know as I look out, some of us have experienced that. Uh, you've, you've, you've walked through that season. Some of us are in that season right now, and yet others of us, it might not be too far around the corner for us. The world and its ways are all set up to help us avoid the freefall of circumstantial crisis in our life. But I'll, I'll just propose this to you. I, I don't think there's ultimately any way around avoiding it altogether because God loves us too much to, to let us live like we can save ourselves. Here's our big idea for today as we journey through Genesis 37 together. It's this our future, or as Cameron said last week, our future. If you were here, you'd get it, but anyway. Our future is defined by the unstoppable hand of a sovereign God who is pleased to use all of life to finish his work in us. And here's what I mean by that that this free fall of suffering that we will inevitably experience in this life is governed by the loving and wise hand of your heavenly Father. I'm reminded of a sermon that Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher, um, preached once, and I'll just quote it for you real quick. He says this, perhaps at this very moment, down in some cabin, or amidst the, the noise and the tumult and the raging of the ocean, when many are alarmed, that there are Christians with calm faces, patiently waiting their father's will, whether it shall be to reach some port of heaven or to be spared to come again to the land into the midst of life's trials and struggles once more. They feel that they are well cared for. They know that the storm has a bit in its mouth and that God holds it in and that nothing can hurt them Nothing can happen to them but what God permits. This is the truth of what we're beginning to see in Joseph's life today. And my prayer for you this week has been that you would feel this deep in your soul, that the storm has a bit in its mouth, that, the, that what seems like this uncontrollable free fall of circumstantial crisis, that God even holds that together, that God even holds the sinful reactions of 11 jealous brothers in such a grip that he determines the salvation of his people through their sinful choices. In Joseph's life, we see two realities that seem like they are impossible to be held in tension together. And, and it's really our outline for today that we're looking at this. One is this sinful sinful activity in the world, our sinful actions, that, that by our fleshly nature when we sin, That that we have been schooled by sin to such a way that we are tempted to believe that we are unlovable people. We see that on one regard. We look at this. We see these brothers. We say, how could these guys be lovable? And if we're honest, we see ourselves in these brothers, right? We see ourselves. We see the moments that we've hated people. We remember what Jesus says that if you hate anyone, it's like you've murdered them, right? We see ourselves in these brothers, And we're tempted to believe that we are absolutely unlovable for what we've done. But on the second hand, we see this other part that's hard to hold in tension. We see God's good, sovereign hand that never leaves Joseph's life and it never leaves our lives. That God is weaving together his purposes even through our sinfulness. What a comfort, right? What a comfort to know that we can't even mess it up. Let's dig in together. So let's look first at our sinful actions. And here's what I notice. Here's the angle that I notice about the sinful actions of each character is that, that there is this unquenchable pursuit of love that when, when handled in the flesh, like when channeled through the flesh, leads to unthinkable sins, leads to things that you do not think are possible. So look, let's look at it like this. Let's look at, um, let's look at Isaac, all right? Isaac. Isaac... Loved Esau more than he did Jacob. He was very clear about that, right? And this led to the disaster that followed in Jacob's life, where he deceived Esau, um, where he deceived Isaac, where he ran and hid uh, in a foreign land with his uncle Laban, who then deceived him. And and uh, Jacob, you know, then comes comes clean, but he deceives Esau again, telling him he's going to go somewhere that he's not. They're reconciled. Then Genesis thirty four happens because Jacob has this. You know, this, 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 this kind of leadership issue, right? And, and he gets it from his dad, Isaac. And, you know, their sister is, is sexually abused. And then there's this mass murder that happens in Shechem. Then we've got Jacob. Jacob clearly loves Rachel more than Leah. He has 13 kids through four different women in search of his love. And then because of the spiraling nature of his pursuit of love, he leaves all of these women and children with this gaping wound in their hearts. This gaping wound that can only be filled by the love of God. And it leads Jacob to favor Joseph above all of the other children because he's a son of his older age, is what the the scriptures say. And he decides to make this visible statement to declare the condition of his heart towards Joseph for all of the world to see, for all of the women and children to see. And he makes this amazing multicolored robe for him to wear. Now for us, we think that's not that big of a deal. I can just go to Ross and pick something up, you know, whatever. We can get one for all the brothers, right? Well, it's not how it worked in this day. This this was, I mean, you gotta think, these guys are basically still homeless. And somehow, you know, uh, Jacob <clears throat> comes up with this, Ability to put together this amazing robe, this outfit to cover him. There really is a picture of his favor, of, of Joseph's favor in his life. It's excessive. And it seems unfair to these brothers. And so what do you think happens as he expresses his love in this kind of favoritism kind of angle? Well, Genesis 37 4 says this. When his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. Why? Well, these boys, especially the boys as we skip to the back of the chapter, uh, Reuben and Judah, who's their mom? Their mom is Leah. Do you remember Leah? Leah was the wife that was rejected. And the names of her children tell the story of her journey of experiencing rejection and ultimately finding favor in God's sight. Some of us know this kind of rejection, right? Right? the the rejection that these brothers feel, and it makes it hard to do anything but hate when you feel rejected, doesn't it? It makes it so hard because we want to protect our own hearts. We don't want to leave ourselves open to that kind of rejection, and the thing that we can be blinded by in, in in the pursuit of covering ourselves in rejection, we can be blinded by the effect that hate has in the human heart the hardness that comes from hating over and over and over again for years and years and years. So my question to you before we blow by this is, are you carrying around any of that hatred that's maybe been surfaced through rejection in your own life today? Like, what do you do with the rejection that you feel in this life? Where have you taken it to? How does it express itself in your life? Because if you felt rejection and you think that it's not expressing itself through your heart and your life you you're probably being deceived you're probably blinded by that because the only way that we can deal with rejection is for Jesus the rejected son of god to give us grace in the midst of that feeling of rejection so just just ask yourself that question what have i done with the rejection that i feel in my life and how has hatred surfaced maybe as uh, in light of that so so here's what we also see from from Joseph okay so out of you know he seems like a pretty good dude but he's got some blind spots right the first thing he does is he he pulls the ultimate little brother move he tattles on his older brothers right you see that some of you are little brothers you know what that's like you've done that before but he comes back in from the field and he says something about what his brothers have been doing as they have been shepherding the flock. And, he, he, and the, the, the way that the, the, the language goes is that he, he paints them in a bad light and he may have even told a lie. We don't know. That's not clear. Uh, but what we do know is that he has a low uh, emotional intelligence, a low EQ, right? Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't quite have the street smarts or the, the tact that, that, that maybe someone that might be more spiritually mature would have. You know, emotional intelligence, it's a psychology word, and you know, it's, it's, but, it, but I would say this, um, it, it, it might not be familiar to you, but I'll, I'll tell you this, it plays a big role, role in how well we live in community with other people. Emotional intelligence is, is basically the ability to recognize, understand, and manage our own emotions and also learn how we recognize, understand, and influence the emotions of others. You've you've heard the phrase, it's not what you said, it's how you said it, right? That's an emotional intelligence thing right there, right? So we we experience it. It's the feel of communication with one another. Now, here's the thing we see. Jacob and Joseph, if if they have any kind of EQ at all, they're not putting it on display here, right? They have zero self-awareness of how their little father and son love affair is destroying their family. In this situation, you know, here's what, here's, this is a verse, I'll show this verse with you from the Proverbs, and Proverbs are kind of like the street smarts of the Bible, right? It's good to go there and, and kind of chew on those. If one of our kids were to pull something like this, here's the proverb Megan would pull out. Uh, if if uh, Joseph was at our, our dinner table, Proverbs 19:11. good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Hey, Joseph, you think, is that something you can maybe overlook, right? Is that, is that something you have to come and tell, you know, your dad to paint your brothers in a bad light? But his lack of concern for his brothers continues to drive this wedge that will eventually lead to his dark night of the soul, right? This, his worst day. And, and then you've got the dreams, right? <clears throat> These dreams are, I believe that they're, they're revelations from God because they're actually fulfilled, right? They actually do happen. Um, at the time, we don't, we don't get any sense of God's presence in Genesis 37 other than the dreams, but it's not explicitly stated that God gave him the dream. But the first dream is this, and they're, they're very similar dreams. The first one is that, that there was this sheaf that, ro- that rose up in the field, and all of the other sheaves bowed down to him. And he said, the, you know, the other 11 did, and his stood taller over the sheaves. And so you can imagine what this did in the brother's heart, right? It drove the wedge deeper. And Genesis 37, 8 says, so they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And this is a pattern that we will see over and over and over again is that the brothers hate Joseph. And he's not doing himself any favors by how he's living his life. Now, the second dream, very similar, that the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Could you imagine a little brother sharing that with you? Hey, guys, I just want to share some good news with you here, right? And uh, Jacob steps in, which is kind of a rare thing for Jacob, as we've learned, to offer any kind of leadership. Um, and he rebukes him, and he says, wait, are you, are you, are you basically bragging that we're all going to bow down to you? And the scriptures go on to say that his brothers hated him even more, but his father kept this in mind, is what Genesis 37 says. And um, these dreams, that they do become fulfilled prophecies, and it's a very rare thing in ancient culture um, that the older 11 brothers would bow down to the younger brother. Now, Joseph isn't the younger brother. There's also Benjamin, who's younger than him. But it, it reminds us kind of a King David story, right? You remember when they were looking for the next king and they were looking at all the sons of Jesse and they were going through the biggest and strongest and they were like, you know, is there any other sons you have? Oh, I have this one out in the field, this little shepherd boy, but there's no way you want to look at him. Guys, that's how God works in the world. He, he takes the weak things to shame the strong things. It's the, same, it's the pattern we see over and over and over again. So if you're in here today and you feel just weak and inadequate, you're probably primed to be used by God in this season of your life. And we see this over and over and over again in the scriptures. In all of this, though, we see that the pursuit of love has blinded each character to sin in some way. Jacob shows favoritism. Joseph is this privileged, arrogant, they're gonna say bratty, you know, younger son, flaunting about his love. And the brothers hate Joseph because of the lack of love they receive from their father. All of them are blinded in the pursuit to be loved. And it's bas- it's the basic human desire to receive and to give love. And and if we deny that, <clears throat> we're probably blinded by sin to some degree. We all have, you know, fleshly ways of rejecting and receiving love. I think it's very difficult for most of us to learn to receive unconditional love. It's like almost what Joe was praying about when he was talking about the, basically the ed- essence of the Protestant Reformation, that a life that depends on faith, like faith alone. Like it is so challenging for our hearts to believe that we can be loved when we have nothing to give. And um, <clears throat> I believe our hearts respond to the hurt of unfilled, unfulfilled desires in very surprising ways. Like, for instance, I doubt Jacob wanted his other 11 sons to feel so neglected by his love, the way that he shows love to, to Joseph. I doubt Joseph really wanted to come across as this prideful uh, and shaming little brother uh, to his brothers. And I doubt the, the 11 brothers woke up in Dothan, and that's not Alabama, by the way. Uh, I doubt they woke up in Dothan one morning and said, hey, let's, let's kill our brother. That'd be a good idea. You see, because it happens over time as sin hardens your heart. My question to you as we kind of transition here to the next part of the story is, how are you responding these days to the unfulfilled desires surrounding what, it's, what it means for you to be loved? How does your heart respond? Do you, do you numb the pain? Or do you make yourself so incredibly busy and just distract the pain away, distract that gaping hole in your own heart? Or even worse, do you live in the lie that you can never receive the love and acceptance that God made you for? What would it look like for you to trust this week, to be honest with God about the pain that you feel, the rejection that you feel, the hurt that you feel, the hatred that you feel? And to trust that on one hand, that you were actually made to be loved, that you are a lovable person. To trust that and believe that and state that, but on the other hand, so much of your experience is that you don't feel that love. That is the place where the gospel can be applied richly to an honest heart. What would it look like for you to be honest with the Lord about that and to let him into that place of the pain in your heart? because only the sovereign hand of our heavenly father can reconcile those two realities inside of us, the deep pain and the deep longing that we have. Let's, let's keep looking at how this story continues to unfold. Let's look at God's sovereign hand and how he weaves his sovereign plan together through the failures and suffering of these characters in very mysterious ways. Think about this. You know, our story as a people began long before we graced the face of this earth. It's easy to forget that in our kind of instant society today, but God's work on behalf of his covenant people is a long story of sinfulness on one hand, but it's an even greater story of his faithfulness in spite of our sinfulness. I wanna re- remind you of what uh, God spoke uh, to to uh, Joseph's, uh, Great grandfather in Genesis 15. His name was Abraham. Uh, Genesis 15, starting at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, "Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. So we're very aware of this promise that God has called. He's called Abraham to himself." He's given them the sign of the covenant of circumcision, but he's also promised them descendants and land as as visible proofs of his plan to make them a great nation, right? The problem is, is that they're just kind of nibbling around the edges of the promised land. And then in Genesis 15, we got this reminder that, oh, by the way, before you guys get into the promised land, you're gonna be held captive 400 years somewhere else. We've kind of forgotten that, right? That was a few months ago that we looked at Genesis 15. Well, the Lord hasn't forgotten that. And so as we're, as we're thinking about getting into the promised land here, we've still got this unfulfilled prophecy. And if there's any unfulfilled prophecies in the Bible, God can't be trusted. And so we've got this, this thing here, this 400-year this thing that we've got to deal with. And so what we see is God beginning to orchestrate this through the sin uh, of, of, of his people. So let's, let's continue journeying on through this in verse 12 of Genesis 37. Now his brothers... My voice is gone. Go Braves! Uh, <clears throat> his brothers went to to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and you guys remember Shechem, right? Uh, Shechem was the the city, uh, the pagan city that that they were not supposed to go to, and they and uh, and Jacob led his his people there, his his children there, and and uh, tremendous pain and consequence of sin ensued after that. And so apparently he kept a flock of sheep around there when he wasn't supposed to be there, right? And so Israel says to Joseph at this point, verse 13, Are your brothers, are not your brothers pastoring in the flock in Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And 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 he says, Okay, here I am. Uh, so he said to him, Go now and see if it's well with your brothers. And so anyway, Joseph goes down uh, to Shechem, can't find his brothers. He's a 17-year-old teenager, right? Can't find his brothers. Apparently, he looks like a lost 17-year-old boy without a GPS, and he's wandering around looking for his brothers, and some stranger finds him, and apparently, I, I don't know, this is mysterious to me, but he's like, hey, they're in Dothan, right? They're in Dothan. I heard that they were gonna go to Dothan, and so, so Joseph says, okay, let's go to Dothan. Now the brothers, as he's, by the way, that's like 65 miles away. It's not just a short little giant. It would have taken a few days to get there. So, so they see him from afar, verse 18, and before he came near to them, They've got this this pain in their heart, right, that we talked about. And unthinkable things come out of the pain of our heart, and we don't give it to the Lord. And so they conspire to kill him, verse 18. And they said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Here comes that aloof, prideful, arrogant, bratty little brother of ours that our father just seems to love so much. Here he comes. And then they begin to conspire the plan. You know, hate always comes out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Hate always comes out, and what comes out, typically it comes out in very unexpected ways. This is why you, you know, you hear people that that commit, you know, heinous crimes, and they say, I never really meant to do that. I didn't think that was capable. When you don't deal with hate in your heart, unthinkable things can come out of your life. And so they say, come on, let's throw him into one of these pits, let's kill him. then we will say, you know, a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. The dreams were really the sticking point for them. Verse 21, Reuben heard it. Reuben is one of Leah's sons, one of the unlovable children, right? From the unlovable wife. And he rescues them out of their hands saying, let not us take his life. And Reuben said to them, let's not shed any blood. Just throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So Reuben really has this desire to appease the brothers on one hand, kind of be this peacemaker, but also, you know, deal with Joseph a little bit too, you know, just rough him up a little. And um, so Joseph uh, comes to his brothers and they strip him of his robe. So, and in, in what, you know, what this means in the Hebrew is, this is the same word that's used for skinning an animal. So I don't want you to think that, oh, they just kind of, they took his jacket off. No, they, they skinned this brother, right? And then they threw him down into this pit that doesn't have any water in it. So he's probably naked in a pit. We know someone else like that from the, the story of the scriptures, right? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he was held, stripped in a pit in the high, under the high priest's house in Caiaphas's house. It's a very similar story. Psalm 88, I believe, is a psalm that talks about he prophesies about that, that night in the pit, the darkness of that night. So Joseph kind of prefiguring Christ here. And so uh, and so anyway, they're, they're, they, you know, there's, then they, they sit down to eat after Joseph's in the pit, right? <clears throat> so baby brother's in a hole in the ground. They're kind of having dinner together. I don't really know how, you, how that happens. You just kind of keep moving on, I guess. And Well, then they look up and they see this caravan of Ishmaelites that's going down to Egypt. And Judah, okay, Judah is another son of Leah, right? The, the unlovable uh, sons from the unlovable mother, uh, who actually Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah, right? <clears throat> and he has this other idea. He says, hey, it's not really benefiting us to just leave Joseph down in this pit to die. Let's sell him and make a little coin for ourselves, right? And um, and so that's exactly what they do. The, the Midian, Midianite traders pass by, and they, they draw him up out of the... The pit, <clears throat> naked and bloody, I'm sure. And they, they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Remember what Judas did to Jesus? I think he sold him for 30 shekels, didn't he? 30 pieces of silver. It's a similar, similar story of the rejection and pain. And uh, Reuben comes back and he returns to the pit. Apparently he was unaware of what was happening. And he saw that Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and he said, guys, what have you done, right? And then they begin to put the rest of their deceptive plan together for their deceptive father. They take Joseph's robe and they, they slaughter a goat, innocent animal, and they dip it in the blood and they send the robe back and they, they, let, uh, they let Jacob's mind wander as to what has happened to his beloved Son and he puts the pieces together. Surely my son's been devoured by these wild, these wild animals. And his father, you know, weeps uncontrollably, inconsolable. No one can. In fact, he, he even makes this statement, something like it. He would he would rather he would he, for him his future is going down to Sheol, weeping is kind of what he says. Now that, that's the story. It's easy for us to look back and you know, not live in the moment and kind of see the big narrative here and kind of be unmoved by it, but it's a terrible story of the effects of sin and what can come from a heart filled with hatred. But I want you to listen to how the psalmist interprets the events of Joseph's life from afar when he zooms out as he writes this. Psalm 105:16. kind of looks from the back end at this story. Verse 16 says this, When he summoned a famine on the land that God did and broke all the supply of bread, that was God, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them, therefore his his brothers, his people. His name was Joseph, and he was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said come to pass the word of the lord tested him and the king sent on and released him the ruler of the people set him free he made him lord of his house and ruler over all of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom here's what i hear from psalm 105 that is true that is so hard to reconcile in our hearts is that god summoned the famine on the land that drove israel to egypt god sent joseph to egypt That's not the way that I read Genesis 37, is it you? The way that I read Genesis 37 is that his sinful, deceiving, hate-filled brothers sent him to Egypt. That's not the way the psalmist describes what happens in Genesis 37. In the free fall of suffering, this is the long version of Joseph's story. In the free fall of your suffering, The long version of your story sounds very similar, church. God was fulfilling the Genesis 15 promise through the sinful will of these 11 brothers. And it makes me wonder what God is up to in the unbearable times of suffering that we all face. Because the free fall of chaos and suffering in this world makes no sense in the middle of it. So I and I would say this, sometimes it's not even helpful to try to make sense of it when you're in the middle of it. You can, you can easily become like Job's friends. And if you know the story of Job, it's these Job has experienced this tremendous pain in his heart and life. He's lost everything. And he has these friends that kind of, these, these friends that kind of come along and and they they try to they try to ask him and kind of prod his heart to say, hey man, what did you did, what did you do to deserve this? And they try to convince him that he must have done something to deserve this kind of suffering that he was experiencing. There's nothing worse than friends like that in the middle of a free fall, right? There's nothing worse. But here's the thing about suffering: when you look at it on its own, if we were to look at Genesis 37 as an isolated story, it would ruin us. If we were to look at the Genesis 37 of our own lives the free fall of suffering by itself, it would absolutely overwhelm us, lead us to despair, and ruin our faith. But God has never called us to look at the suffering of our own life, uh, disconnected from the promises that he's given to us. One of the most famous scriptures in all the Bible comes from Joseph's life as he looks at it through the other end of the story, the long view of the story. It's a mature statement. His EQ has changed. And he makes this in Genesis 50, 20, and we'll talk about it a lot in the next um, month or two, I'm sure. He says this, as for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about to that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph does not declare this to his brothers when he's in the pit. You don't hear him crying that out when he's in that pit in Dothan. You don't hear him crying that out when he's being taken away by those Midianite traders. You don't hear him crying that out when he's in prison in Egypt. But you hear him crying that out as he sees God's grace come full circle in his life and and, and stitch together, weave together a plan greater than he could have ever imagined it's easy for us to circumvent around or to squirm away from suffering and pain when we're in the middle of it. You know, to to go from our suffering and to make a beeline to our assumptions about God's character and his love for us. And every time that we do that, when we make a beeline straight from our suffering to assuming motives on God's behalf, it it, it almost always leads us to doubt God's love for us. And listen, sometimes our hearts are so broken, this just happens. It just happens. I mean, we're in the middle of that, even as a church right now, we just don't understand what God is doing. But the promise is that God is working good toward his people for their future, even through the sin that's all around. This sinful action that his brothers, you know, that comes out of the hatred of their heart in Genesis 37 will ultimately lead to their salvation. How twisted, how crazy is that? That's so wild to me. But so much of the time we run from the suffering because we cannot bear to hold the suffering in one hand and a promise of God's unconditional love and care and favor of our lives in the other hand because it is so mysterious to us. The only one that can hold these two realities in tension in our hearts and give us a peace that passes understanding is the one who suffered on our behalf, Christ himself. So how can we, as we kind of land the plane here, learn to trust the Father's sovereign hand when we're in the middle of suffering? Just consider this for a moment. Jesus and Joseph. Jesus, like Joseph, was the apple of his father's eye. He was God's only son. Jesus, like Joseph, was rejected and sold out by his brothers. Jesus, like Joseph, was thrown into a pit, into the pit of hell, and all seemed to be lost. Jesus, like Joseph, returned in glory through overcoming the ultimate grave. And he will return to finish what he started in us, church. And until then, the challenge to us is we need to learn to pick up the Father's coat ourselves, the blood-drenched robe of righteousness that he has given to us and his son to cleanse us from all of our sin. Pastor Keller, Tim Keller, pointed out in a sermon about Joseph's life this poem that this uh, 17th century English priest wrote. As he, as he preached this sermon one time, and he applied this, the, the angle of Joseph's coat in his own life. I want to read it to you, and then I'll pray for us. Here's what he says about, about this story of Joseph's coat in his own life. He says, Wounded I sing, tormented I indict, thrown down I fall into a bed and rest. Sorrow has changed its note. Such is his will who changes all things as pleaseth best. For well he knows if but one grief and smart among my many had its full career, sure, it would carry with it even my heart, and both would run until they found a beer. That's not like a beer, beer, like we think. That's a grave, okay? To fetch the body, both being due to grief, but if he had spoiled the race and given to anguish, one of joy's coats, ticing it with relief, to linger in me and together languish. I live to show his power, who once did bring, my joys to weep and now my griefs, So here's what Herbert's saying in this. He's saying, if one of my sorrows could have its full career, its full way in my heart, it would destroy me. It would utterly ruin me. It would take me to the grave. And that's how suffering feels when you're in the middle of it. Like it will never stop. Like it is a free fall that will never end. And we ask ourselves the question, how in the world can there be a future beyond this? But he says for the Christian Something else is happening. There's a stronger force at play that God spoils the enemy's agenda in suffering, church. He meets our anguish. He meets our suffering with this coat of grace, this extravagant, over-the-top, vibrant, expressive, wonderful, unconditional coat of his love that he clothes us with, church. And as we've said, everyone in this story is looking for love and everyone in this room is looking for love. And through this amazing coat of extravagant grace that he's given to us in Christ, there will be joy in the morning. He makes our griefs eventually sing. Even when it seems like it's never gonna be possible, we will sing again. Only in Jesus' The one who's won the coat for us can sorrow be spoiled by love. When Jesus bore the cross, he was stripped of his father's love. He was receiving the punishment that we deserve. So my question to you is, are you in a free fall of suffering right now? What would it look like for you to pick up the free gift of the coat of the Father's grace in this blood-drenched robe of righteousness that God has given to you in Christ today? What would it look like to let Jesus spoil the enemy's agenda in our suffering? Because that's what he came to do. Let's pray together. Father, Father, uh, I confess it's much easier to preach about this than to experience it sometimes. Lord, I ask that we, as your people, would experience the extravagant grace of God in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our suffering. God, I ask that you would help our hearts to be honest enough to confess how our hearts have been miffed and we're in this mysterious place of not understanding what you're doing when we're in the free fall of suffering and grief. But at the same time, we have this promise, this promise that has this evidence that's supernatural. God, the the only way that we can hold those two truths in tension and to thus shield our hearts from the enemy's agenda of hatred, hardening us is through trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of your one and only son and the benefits that come from knowing him. Father, there may be weeping in the night, but there is joy in the morning. And Father, we long for the morning when our theology matches our reality. So God, would you give us a glimpse of that even this morning? We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of
0: believers on mission.